Hello, everybody. My name is Ian Dunt, um, and welcome to uh, an event that's being organized by the UCL Center on US Politics. Before I start, I've been instructed to tell you that there's a further event uh, on US election integrity by the UCL Center on US Politics. That's coming up in March. If you go on, your web, on their website, you can sign up there. I am here, however, to have a conversation with Brian Klass. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm a columnist at the I newspaper. I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal. And I'm a former student of UCL. That's the most important part for our purposes here. Uh, Brian Class, unfortunately, has such an extensive list of accomplishments that I can't remember all of them and have to read them out from a list, something which irritates me greatly. Um, he's an associate professor of global politics at University College London, a columnist for The Washington Post, host of the Power Crops podcast. And most importantly for us, he's the author of the new book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power? and how it changes us, which I've now read a grand total of two times, which is uh, at least one more time than I've read even my own book. Um, Brian, hello, we're gonna talk for about an, a sort of an hour, an hour and 15, there'll be a Q&A uh, towards the end. So chuck your questions into the little Q&A box at the bottom. Brian, I think probably my first question, um, you know, as someone who is living in this country at this time, what was it that made you feel you needed to write a book about narcissistic psychopaths and how they attain power? It's fu it's funny you ask about the um, the sort of timeliness of this because my my publisher did say to me that it would be great if there was some sort of event in the news in the in the you know sort of British political sphere that made people wonder why we get such bad leaders. So if anyone happens to notice anything, uh, by all means, please let me know. Um, but but I would say you know what what I sort of started doing in my career was I started studying authoritarian leaders, author you know despots and dictators. And I traveled around the world and I interviewed some really awful people, uh, people who had done horrible stuff. And what struck me was when I came back to the US or to Britain, and I would talk to people about what it was like to you know, shake hands with someone who'd ordered torture or a war criminal. Um, what they would say to me <laughs> caught me off guard. They'd say, oh, that sounds just like the same personality as my old boss or you know, mm -hmm. the guy who used to run my homeowners association. And it sort of stuck with me. And I, over the years, started to think maybe I needed to broaden out and, and think more about power, not just about um, authoritarians. And so that's where this book really came from. And the fact that uh, my podcast is called Power Corrupts, and I didn't know if it was true. So I wanted to check whether Power Corrupts actually was the case. Uh, and indeed it is, power does corrupt, but it's perhaps the least interesting and most straightforward aspect of power. Everything else in the book uh, is much more fascinating and nuanced, and, and I found a joy to research. You do, I mean, the, the list of interviews and the kind of people that you're interviewing in the book is quite extraordinary. I mean, you've got former prime ministers, you've got mass murderers, you've got sadists. I mean, worst of all, you have evolutionary psychologists. What, what is it like to... Uh, interview a mass murderer actually like does it do you have to sort of distance yourself emotionally from the reality of, of what that person has done yeah you know this was the thing that i i try to explain to people as as best i can without it coming off as sort of um you know coming off the wrong way because i i talk to some awful people and i go into these meetings having read what they've done right i mean some of them have been responsible for large numbers of civilian deaths. Some people are accused of war crimes, as I said. Um, one of the people featured in the book is the worst bioterrorist in American history. And that story, for example, was instructive because I had read lots of the court files, this woman named Ma Anand Sheila, who, who poisoned uh, you know, just under a thousand people with salmonella uh, in, in the mid-1980s. 
And I read all these assassination plots that she was involved with and all these horrible things. And then I opened the door, you know, to see her at her uh, care home that she works in in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And it's this petite, you know, five foot tall, silver haired, 70 year old woman who's incredibly lovely and kind to me and funny and witty. And I had that experience over and over. And I think, you know, part of it is that these people are people. They're, they're full of complexity and depth and good and bad sides. Part of it is also by design because some of the people who are awful are really good at getting in power because they're so manipulative. They're so clever and charming and able to sort of read a person really effectively. I talk lots about uh, narcissistic psychopaths who have a gift for superficial charm. So the, the thing that's really unnerving about this experience is how normal it became for me to interact with someone who I knew on paper was a monster and yet who seemed like a perfectly likable, charming person in my own interaction and trying to reconcile both of those uh, at the same time. And it actually gave birth to a lot of the critical analysis I present in Corruptible, which is that you know behavior is highly subject-specific and context-specific, and it's malleable. And I, I raise this question very early on in the book where I say, you know, if you were thrust into the position of being the dictator of Turkmenistan, we all like to imagine that we'd be, you know, sort of progressive reformers who do the right thing at every turn. But the people who actually end up in these positions know that if they do the wrong thing in terms of strategy, their family will get killed. You know, they might get deposed and murdered or forced into exile. So the stakes of power are so high that people who otherwise might think of themselves as good, decent people can transform very quickly based on the situation. And this is so sort of how I reconcile this idea of liking people on a personal level that I find abhorrent on a more intellectual or logical level. Does it, I mean, did it make you trust people a bit less having so much contact with very charismatic, morally atrocious human beings? Well, you know, the thing that it made me feel sad about actually was that you're always questioning someone's motives and also the truth of what they're telling you in a way that I didn't before. So everybody lies to me. I mean, almost everybody who I talk to in these interviews lies to me in some way because they know I'm going to write about them. And they're usually being asked about sometimes the worst thing they've ever done in their life. So, you know, they're going to put a positive spin on it. I, I, I sort of, I say to my students often, like, you know, when I interview a coup plotter and I say, why did you do it? They never say, well, it was for the money and the power, right? There's always some lofty reason. And of course, <laughs> you know, they, they are doing it for the money and the power often. So mm-hmm. you have to tease out what you think is true in, in, in interviews where people lie to you, but also you sort of get this this cynicism. And I write in the book, one of the trickiest sections that I wrote was about this um, former prime minister of Thailand who uh, was accused of or was complicit in um, the deaths of dozens of civilians uh, during protests about a little over a decade ago in Thailand. And what was strange about it is that, you know, I had this interaction with him where we both met in this upscale hotel in Bangkok. Um, you know, the kind of place where you've got to be quite rich to, to stay there. And he recommends we, we, we meet to have a coffee there. And uh, the only two people in this cafe are me and him, but neither of us thinks the other person is who they are because he's wearing a t-shirt and he's the former prime minister of Thailand. So I'm figuring <laughs> this guy is going to be in a suit. And, he, and I, at the time was a grad student. So he thought, you know, this guy is going to be much older. So we ended up emailing each other while we were sitting there saying like, I'm waiting by the corner or whatever. And of course we get up and sort of say, oh, you know, we were here all along and laugh about it. But the reason I, I mentioned this is because he's wearing this shirt um, 
this t-shirt and he says, oh, you know, I donate blood on Tuesday mornings as a weekly thing. And, you know, the, the, the cynicism that I'd been developing as a result of my work was like, is he doing that? Or is he just telling me that as the precursor to the interview so that when I go and write about him, I find him more sympathetic? Or did he, or, or possibly did he arrange the meeting so that I, he would have come directly from donating blood and would seem more sympathetic? You know, and I, it's, it's, a, it's one of the shames of having to work in this field of shady characters around power is that you don't just take things at face value very often. And, uh, and, and it creates this sort of distance between you and the interviewee uh, that, that is perhaps uh, healthy, but also uh, unfortunate for, on a human level. So let's talk about um, some of the ideas in the book. I have, um, I spent a disproportionate amount of my time talking with other authors about how you take sort of quite complex ideas and turn them into like a thrilling page turning narrative. When I sat down to read your book for the first time, I was sort of sat on the couch opposite my partner and I read the first five pages and then I just said the word bastard. And she said, why? Is it like the Brexiters? I was like, no, it's Brian Class, isn't it? He's just gone and basically done like the best opening to a politics book that I've read all year. And it is. I mean, it's, I have to say it's an incredibly gripping first few pages. The rest of the book's complete rubbish, obviously. It's a very, very gripping first few pages where you just think, right, well, obviously I have to read the entirety of this book sat here over the next three hours now. Um, and it starts with the story of these two islands, Beacon Island and Tongan Archipelago, um, and two very different stories that sort of tell us something about power. Can you just talk about the stories of those islands and why it's pertinent to the ideas in your book? Yeah, well, well, well. Thanks for the praise about the opening. It was it was uh, written shortly after lockdown in my very cramped kitchen in London, uh, <laughs> thinking about these two faraway desert islands, which seemed very remote at the time. Um, so the, the two stories juxtapose this question about is it hierarchy and is it human nature that we have to worry about? So um, the Tongan story was popularized by Rutger Bregman, the, the Dutch historian. And basically what it, the story relates to is these boys who run away from home, their ship breaks, and they end up marooned on this, on this island. Um, and they're there for a year. And there's no hierarchy between the boys. They're all sort of 16-year-olds, and they work together. And they, you know, when one of them breaks his leg, uh, they just sort of nurse him back to health. They rotate shifts. They always, you know, co collaborate on everything. And the alternative story is the Batavia, the, the shipwreck of the Batavia, where it, sh it crashes off the coast of Western Australia. And they end up on this island with effectively nothing on it. I mean, there's no food source, no fresh water, and, you know, hundreds of people to feed and to, to, to need to, you know, make sure that they have enough water to drink. And so they send the, the top level guys out on an expedition to find a rescue party, which leaves this sort of mid-level guy on the ship who turns out to be effectively a, a psychopathic apothecary uh, on the island with everybody else. And he starts systematically murdering people. Um, you know, he dresses himself in these fine clothes and sort of prances around with uh, all of the status symbols he can accumulate as he gets all these other people to murder on his behalf. Um, and ultimately kills dozens of people in the pursuit of consolidating power on this island. And so the question that I pose early on in the book is, you know, what is it about this? Is it about the hierarchy? Well, you know, it doesn't seem to be because um, we have plenty of situations in which an absence of hierarchy also produces horrible situations. We have plenty of situations where strong hierarchy produces uh, loads of, loads of um, you know, good outcomes or bad outcomes. It varies. And then, of course, with that the, the Tongan teenagers, um, you know, you have them collaborating, working together, solving problems. Is that the solution? Well, it's probably not realistic. 
Um, so it's trying to pose this question of what is it about power? Is it about the status? Is it about the hierarchy, the people involved? And that's the really difficult question that the book tries to answer because it's both, right? I mean, you have hierarchies, you have individual flaws, you have systems, and you have ultimately, as the question I pose early on in the book is, is it that corruptible people are drawn to power or is it that power corrupts? And of course, the answer is both. But diagnosing which one is which is so important for figuring out the right solution because a misdiagnosis means that the solution you'll come up with is totally backwards or wrong and could actually make the problem worse. It's so, I mean, you, it's so interesting to, to recognize as you read the book that it hasn't always been this way in the history of our species. I mean, I, lots of my sort of education was reading, you know, Locke, Hobbes, Rousseau, Mill, and all of that sort of the, these foundational ideas of Western society are often based on assessments of the state of nature. And actually, as you sort of lay out in the book, when you look at the modern science and what the state of nature was like, it actually was seems to have been predominantly non-hierarchical, which seems very strange. We assume that it's everyone running around beating people and becoming the top chieftain or, or whatever. That's not where the current science suggests at all, is it? Yeah, so there's there's still debate on this on this question, but the the main prevailing wisdom in the sort of long sweep of what's called big history, uh, the history of the species in the sort of hundreds of thousands of years scale, is this idea that for most of human uh, history we lived in what were called bands of up to sort of eighty people, and there's a crucial aspect to that, which is that everybody knows everybody else. So when you have somebody who's trying to seize power, there's social uh, stigmas attached to that. And in fact, there's this wonderful mechanism of trying to cut people down to size in modern day hunter-gatherer societies that anthropologists suggest probably existed in sort of the Stone Age past of our species. And it's where they tried to find a way to ensure that a hunter who is particularly good at supplying meat to the, to the group uh, wouldn't get too big for their britches, so to speak. So they would allocate the hunt based on the arrowhead that was used, not on the person who threw the spear. So they would randomly assort the arrowheads in terms of ownership across the village uh, citizens. And every time that they would rotate it, you know, it would sort of randomize who actually got credit for a kill in hunting. So even if you were a great hunter and you killed half of the, the game that the, that the sort of group was eating, you'd only get you know, 180th of the credit, so to speak, which would mean that you don't actually end up accumulating power. And they had this thing called reverse dominance hierarchies, where they deliberately cut people down to size. Uh, there's also an, a ritual called insulting the meat, where when you brought back uh, some sort of prize kill, people would make fun of you and say, oh, you know, that, that skin and bones, what a terrible hunter you are. And the whole idea was to enforce egalitarianism. Now, there have been some uh, sort of criticisms of this view that have become more prominent in recent years. Some of them will say, look, there were sedentary lifestyles around fishing villages where hierarchy probably did exist. But the main sort of conventional wisdom at the moment is what I refer to as war and peas, P-E-A-S, um, which refers to this idea of how hierarchy emerges. War is this idea that by conquest, people end up getting in much larger groups and then hierarchy becomes inevitable uh, because you have much larger societies and, and then to organize them, you have to have some sort of pecking order. Uh, the Pease hypothesis is based on the agricultural revolution. And this idea is that 
as you became sedentary, you could actually expand because there wasn't as much of a handicap to, to size in terms of the group dynamics. And therefore, the societies grew. And of course, as we know, you know, the Greeks and Romans uh, got to be you know, sort of mega empires compared to the standards of 80 people in a group. And that is the, the story of hierarchy as it's told by, by modern anthropologists. So the question then is, if that's inevitable, right? If, if, if in other words, if we're doomed to hierarchy because we live in such large numbers that we have to have some system to organize us, how can we make sure that the power embedded in the hierarchy doesn't actually corrupt people and doesn't attract the worst among us? And that's sort of where I move on uh, from chapter two to the rest of the book and talk about this idea of systems, individuals, and the interplay between them. Yeah, I mean, let's start with the individuals, um, which is probably the least radical sort of part of the book in, in an odd way. Um, we do feel like we're sort of there's an overrepresentation of psychopaths or at the very least controlling behavior when we look at leadership positions, not just in politics, obviously in politics, too, but also in corporations. And we may feel it in our own lives that those that succeed tend to have a marked reduction in their capacity for empathy than those those without. Uh, is that a true intuition that we have? Is there any sort of science behind it to back it up? Yeah. So, I mean, the the. the... Research on what's called the dark triad, which is, has got three legs to it, as you might expect by the name, is uh, psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. And psychopathy or being a psychopath is indeed overrepresented in the halls of power. How much is up to debate? Because it depends on how you measure psychopathy in terms of the scale you use, and mm -hmm. it depends on what sort of data you have, because inevitably psychopaths are very good at lying about being psychopaths. So we have some uncertainty in the estimates, but most of the data that I've seen suggests that it's between four times and a hundred times more psychopaths in positions of power than in the rest of society. And still psychopaths are rare. But I devote a chapter to them because they have a disproportionate influence when they do get into power in wreaking havoc. And one of the paradoxes of psychopathy is that often the people who are best at getting power are indeed people with the dark triad. And those are the people who are worst at wielding power because they're the least empathetic and the most strategic thinkers about getting their own way and the, and the least attuned to other people's suffering. Now, what's interesting about psychopaths, I thought in, in, in researching this, was how everybody I talked to who studies psychopaths said the same thing to me. They said, there's a, there's a dichotomy between the functional and the dysfunctional psychopaths. So if you imagine the dark triad as like a series of dials where you sort of dial up the trade or down, you know, the, dial the trait down, the functional psychopaths can dial these traits down when they need to. They can decide to sort of blend in for a bit. If it's a job interview, they can be a little bit less callous, a little bit more empathetic. They can fake it, basically. Um, whereas the dysfunctional psychopaths end up in prison because they can't really turn these traits off and they end up becoming serial killers and, and so on. Uh, Ted Bundy, for example, the American serial killer, was one of the highest ever psychopath scores uh, registered uh, in, in these measures. But I, you know, I think one of the things that's fascinating about this world is that you know, when they did brain scans uh, of psychopaths, they did uh, an MRI scan and they showed these psychopaths images that would make the rest of us extremely uncomfortable, children being harmed, animals being harmed, et cetera. And a normal person's brain lights up in that environment when they're shown those images. The psychopaths, when they were scanned, had very little reaction to them. But the fascinating bit was, and this was sort of an off the cuff idea by the researcher, she said, what happens if we tell the psychopaths to imagine what it would be like to care about these children or these animals? And all of a sudden, their brains started looking like normal brains, which wow. suggests that they can sort of switch on empathy 
when it's useful to them, uh, which, by the way, is something that they might be able to do in an election, in a job interview, etc. And this is why I think it's a problem that we have so many aspects of climbing the hierarchy that are tied to performances, public performances of being a charming, extroverted individual, because those traits while they are certainly correlated with getting power, are not necessarily correlated with wielding power effectively or justly. And then below the level of psychopath, there is this sort of, those who enjoy control, essentially, who who like the feeling of being able to control others. And again, we see an overrepresentation, I suppose, of that group, and that's the kind of person who would go for a leadership position in the first place. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is the, the, the aspect where I think we have to think carefully about the blindness we have when we analyze people in power. And what I mean by that is that pretty much every analysis of powerful people in modern society ignores all the people who didn't become powerful. So what it starts with is it starts with the group of people who are currently in power. Oh, it's the politicians we love to hate. It's the CEO who's behaving badly. It's the police officers who abused someone or you know killed someone. And what we're not thinking about when we make those analyses are the people who decided not to try to get into those positions of power or who tried to get into those positions of power and failed to get there. And I think that's why we've truncated our analysis in a way that's really, really bad for actually understanding what's going on. Because power-hungry individuals, by definition, what we mean when we say power-hungry is a person for whom power is an end in itself. It's the goal. It is obvious that a power-hungry person is going to seek power more than everybody else. So, you know, you have already this massive self-selection effect where people who who view power as a end in itself are disproportionately likely to be represented in powerful positions. That's a problem because what we really want to have is we want to have people who want to serve in positions of power. And yet those people often will look at the powerful positions in modern society and they'll see a lot of the costs that come with them and they'll say, it's not really worth it. Whereas the powerful people say, it's fine. You know, if you've got to endlessly fundraise or, you know, sort of bow to lobbyists or face death threats in, you know, sort of modern life as a politician, power hungry people are willing to make that trade off. The rest of us sort of say, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into that world anymore. Um, Which is, you know, it's one of the things that I thought about personally, because my mom ran for school board when I was eight years old in the local school board, just to sort of help out the school district. And it's why I got interested in politics. And, you know, in modern American society, running for school board is a surefire way to get crazy people to show up to your house, harass your children, post your address on the internet, possibly threaten to kill you. And so, you know, I talked to people who I knew who were in politics or local politics growing up. And today they say, you know, I wouldn't do it. You know, I, I, I wouldn't make that trade-off. Who would do it? Well, you know, the psychopathic narcissists are very yeah. eager to continue signing up for positions of power. So I think we have to think quite carefully about that. We have, um, incidentally to the audience, guys, if you have questions, chuck them in that Q&A bit. Don't wait until the end because you're going to forget what the question is. Um, and thank you for the people who are already doing it. Um, so we've got a, a sense of the kind of people that go for power. There's this rather <laughs> frustrating question, which is, why do we keep on electing them uh, in politics and why do we keep on allowing them to take power the rest of the time? Can you talk to us about the role of um, signaling in the animal kingdom and how that has something to tell us about the manner in which it operates in society and why we see these kind of outcomes? Yeah, there's this whole world uh, of what's called signaling theory. And the idea here is they're basically shortcuts in the animal kingdom that allow everybody to just sort of avoid a lot of costly mistakes um, in in very quick shorthand. So 
this idea goes between uh, sort of costly signaling, for example, is something where you are giving up something in order to send the signal. Um, and then you also have honest signaling and dishonest signaling. So whether the signal you're giving off is, is true or whether the signal you're giving off is dishonest. So for example, uh, you know, peacock feathers are an example of an honest, costly signal because the, the, the sort of plume that they provide is actually a proxy for fitness, evolutionarily and sort of biological desirability, but it really slows the bird down. So it's actually at a, a significant cost. Uh, something that's not a costly signal would be something like a poisonous stripe on a, a deadly poisonous frog, because the frog doesn't have to do anything for the stripe to exist. It's just there. But if something eats it, it will die. So yeah. it's, it's signaling, don't eat me. You're going to die as well. And it's very helpful. Now, these shorthands exist in human society all the time, and they're associated with power. So for example, one of the things that you know we often will do is look at people's clothes or their watch or something like that as a proxy for how rich or powerful they are. Um, and this is why we have, for example, fake Rolexes, because it's a way to signal status without having the corresponding money. That is a dishonest signal in modern society. Um, now, we don't have perfect proxies, even for people who want to signal status and wealth, because as I say in the book, you know, even billionaires wear blue jeans sometimes. So you, you have these aspects where what we have to figure out is when we assess leaders, when we're actually evaluating who to vote for, how do we figure out whether the person is actually a good person or just very good at dishonest signaling? How do we figure out if they're you know, motivated by public service or just pretend to be motivated by public service? And I think you know, some of this matches on pretty well with campaign finance because you, know, you have very costly signals that some people put out. You know, Mike Bloomberg, for example, spent hundreds of millions of dollars on campaign advertising for his presidential bid. And he didn't win, partly because a lot of voters thought it was dishonest. They thought not, not necessarily that he was lying, but that he was misrepresenting himself or paying for a version of himself that they didn't view as authentic. So, you know, we have uh, some ways of trying to tease out the differences. But I do think that the, the, the combination of signaling where we're not perfect at discerning what's honest versus dishonest and the shifts in our modern politics that have rewarded things like showmanship, entertainment, stuff that has nothing to do with effective governing uh, are really big problems. Because if you're trying to find a good entertainer, a sort of clown-like figure to make you amused or find politics interesting or fun, um, you know, the, the type of signaling that comes off that works may actually be honest. You might actually be very funny. <laughs> you know, Donald Trump was a showman. He was very effective at signaling that he was an entertaining figure to a certain segment of the public. And yet you think, but what are we actually trying to get politicians to signal to us? Are they supposed to signal that they're good people with honest motivations who want to help us? Or are they supposed to signal that they'll make life interesting? And, you know, that's where the book also sometimes turns the mirror back on us and says, mm -hmm. We have to think carefully about why these people have ended up in power because it's, yes, of course, they're seeking power more than the rest of us, but we're also allowing them to get power because power is relational. You, you only have power if you have followers, and at least in democracies, for the most part, um, there is a relationship between uh, you know, power being given to someone and them actually being somewhat popular in modern society. There's also a tendency with this, which I suppose we've forgotten about a little bit, because in a world of Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, they don't actually fit into that stereotype. But the 
there used to be a lot more chat of sort of, especially men looking sort of virile, you know, bigger jaws, full set of hair, all disgusting attributes, in my opinion, being taller. And that these essentially being a sort of, my anthropologist friends hate it when I use the word caveman in this context, but being essentially a sort of throwback of a studio element of a caveman personality of this is the one to fight the other tribe being supplanted to a series of situations where that's just simply not pertinent. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the analogy that works really well actually right now is, you know, we're, we're speaking about this right as Russia is on the, the cusp of invading Ukraine and Vladimir Putin is constantly pictured shirtless. And there's a reason for this. At least evolutionary anthropologists think there's a reason for this. And they argue that even though in the past hunter-gatherers in these sort of pre-modern societies in the Stone Age uh, lived largely in egalitarian groups, there were moments of crisis that they faced where a rival group would potentially invade them or attack them, or they were starving and they needed to turn to someone to, to rescue them. And in those moments, it was probably adaptive. In other words, it helped them survive to turn to physically large men uh, who provided the sort of I will fix it mentality, right? And the argument they make is that in the sort of evolutionary timescales of our biology, not enough time has passed for our brains to have fundamentally changed from our Stone Age ancestors. So we basically have exactly the same brain. But our circumstances of our society and our lifestyle have radically transformed. And so they call this evolutionary mismatch, where you have aspects that made sense in our brain wiring and our brain chemistry to turn to leaders in times of crises that were physically strong men, that then in the modern world still work because our brain is the same if somebody activates that sort of latent template that exists within at least some of us. And so the argument is that, you know, Vladimir Putin manufactures crises and then is pictured sort of as this shirtless strongman uh, mm -hmm. who is able to tap into this Stone Age mentality. One of the interesting things when they test this in modern psychology, because it's replicable that this is the case when you prime groups of voters and say, pick somebody to be your leader, if you prime them with a crisis frame, uh, they're much more likely to respond to the physically strong men than if you just have a, a generic frame that says, you've got to pick a leader, who would you like to be in charge? And the fascinating and depressing, utterly depressing thing about this is because of the aspect where there was a gender uh, component to this in the Stone Age, where being a physically large man was actually helpful, this effect doesn't seem to actually hold for women. And so there was a Australian politician who didn't read the fine prints, apparently, on these studies, who had read that being tall was correlated with attaining leadership. And before her election, she had her legs broken and stretched by three inches to get elected. Now she won, uh, but the research would suggest at least that it wasn't because of the leg stretching. Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, so we have, this, we have a sort of impression of the kind of people going for power and why we are quite susceptible to that type. The bit of the book that I found, I think probably the most interesting is on structure of power, the effect that has, and indeed how we can change it. You have this kind of, it, I'm about to make it sound much more tedious than it really is, but there is an example through the regulation of parking for diplomats in New York that, that actually sort of outlines lots of these ideas. Do you want to go through it? I promise it's more exciting than I've just made it sound. Yeah, you know, it's it's one of these these studies that just sort of, it just is is a perfect natural experiment. Natural because the researchers didn't do anything. They just observed what happened. And it sort of created a control group and a, a sort of randomized trial in a way uh, that was really brilliant. So what they did was they, they looked at United Nations diplomats' parking tickets. Now, earlier on in the 1990s and early 2000s, 
the diplomats had diplomatic immunity, which meant that they could basically park wherever they wanted, get fined and not pay the fines. So it was like the Wild West for these diplomats. And they, they racked up parking tickets accordingly. There was about 150,000 parking tickets by UN diplomats. And I think it was worth about $18 million that the city lost in revenue. And so finally, in the early 2000s, Mike Bloomberg, the, the mayor at the time, uh, decided to start impounding their cars. He said, if I can't prosecute them, I can at least take their cars away. And that meant that all of a sudden, there's a sort of pre-enforcement period and a post-enforcement period. Now, what happened was fascinating on two levels. The first level is this idea that culture matters. And it does, because in the pre-enforcement period, the people who were from the more corrupt cultures, let's say Yemen, Egypt, et cetera, sometimes had like 190 parking tickets per diplomat on average. Whereas those who are from the less corrupt cultures of public service, you know, let's say Norway and Finland and Japan and so on, Germany, et cetera, had very low numbers of parking tickets per diplomat. Now, after the enforcement period, the Yemenis and Egyptians started parking like the Norwegians and the Japanese almost exactly overnight. It just changed immediately. And that shows how much accountability and enforcement matters for abuse of power and corruption. But also, and this was the kicker, the longer that the Norwegians, the Japanese, the Germans, et cetera, stayed in New York where they could get away with it, the more they started to park illegally. So it's this mismatch between culture, expectations, and accountability that dictates a lot of our behavior. And it also, you know, in a way, it's actually quite hopeful because it means there's some aspect of this that is actually fixable. And I think that's why, you know, despite having interviewed some of the most awful people on the planet as part of the research for this book, I'm fundamentally optimistic because if we change the systems, if we change the accountability, the sort of incentives, the punishments, et cetera, you can actually change behavior pretty effectively and make people think twice before abusing their power, even if it's something much more consequential than, than a parking fine. Um, there is that quote, the very famous, the second most famous quote about power, the most famous quote about power you don't actually mention, which is obviously Uncle Ben to Spider-Man saying with great power comes great responsibility. And I think you really missed out on something there because it speaks quite directly to the themes of your book. The second most famous is the Lord Acton uh, sort of quote, which is, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupt absolutely. And you spend a good portion of this book interrogating that idea, which is sort of subtly, but importantly, both true and false at the same time. Can you walk us, walk us through the ways? I mean, I guess, first of all, the ways in which it's false, and then let's talk about the ways that it, that it might be true. Well, it's, gener it's generally true, but it's something where it's a much smaller portion of the story than I think we're led to believe. Um, so the, the way it's false, though, first off, I think illustrates this point really well. And I talk about this in the introduction with the Stanford Prison Experiment. And the Stanford Prison Experiment is the standard way of showing how power corrupts people. Because for those of you who are not familiar with this, this study, very briefly, uh, Philip Zimbardo, a Stanford professor in the 1970s, builds effectively a fake jail in the psychology building at Stanford and assigns students to be prison guards or prisoners. And lo and behold, the, the prison guards, up, upon putting the uniform on, quickly start abusing the prisoners who are actually their classmates, uh, you know, sort of people who should have been on the same level as them. And so this is the sort of standard story, right? Put the per right person in the uniform, all of a sudden they're going to be uh, corrupt. What the, the research that I found that hasn't gotten a popular airing, um, unfortunately, is a 2007 study which replicates the advertisement for this study and does it word for word and says, 
you know, we're going to recruit people for a psychological study of prison life. That's what they, the wording was in the, the initial bit. And they said, let's try it with half the college towns getting that ad. And let's randomly assign another half of the college towns who get an ad that says for a psychological study. So they've taken out the words of prison life. And now let's see who shows up, right? And they did personality assessments of the various people who responded to these ads. And they found that indeed, the psychological study of prison life wording attracted more Machiavellian, authoritarian, psychopathic people than people who just responded to the generic psychology study. And I talk about this at length with a a chapter on policing about how rotten systems can attract rotten people and good systems can attract good people. So yes, it may be the case that power corrupts in a way I'll explain in a second, but a much bigger effect is this idea of people being drawn to power uh, for the wrong reasons. Now, when it actually does happen, when power actually does corrupt, it corrupts on two levels. The first is psychological and the second is physical. Uh, and and the, the, the physical one I'm going to talk about with monkeys, and it's uh, one of the most interesting parts of research I did for the book. But the psychological aspect is somewhat straightforward in a way. I mean, the simplest way of putting this is that people below you start to become abstractions to you because they're psychologically distant from you. They become viewed as more disposable. And you know, since publishing the book, I, uh, I spoke to Andrew Yang, who was a presidential candidate in the United States uh, in the last round of elections. And one of the things he said to me really, really, I think just was so simple in how he explained this. He said, for a year, I walked into a room Everybody stood up and cheered for me. I told bad jokes. They laughed like it was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. Everybody was deferential to me. And it just goes to your head. You just start to think that you walk on water. And, you know, I had to have these sort of gut check moments where it's like, that was not funny. Why was somebody, everybody laughing as though this was like stand-up comedy, you know? And, and so I think this is, uh, there's a lot of psychological changes. The physical changes to me were even more interesting. Um, And the study that I point to in the book is about macaque monkeys who are uh, studied in this instance where they're initially individual. So they have no hierarchy whatsoever. And then the sort of the columns between them, the partitions between them are lifted. And all of a sudden they're in a social group of four. And within about 10 minutes, they, they create a hierarchy, one, two, three, four. And the, and the researchers can very clearly identify who's one, who's two, who's three, who's four. Now, what's fascinating about this is then when they put them into this chair that they've been trained to use, and they get the option of pulling one lever and getting banana pellets or food, and pulling another lever and getting cocaine intravenously injected into them, the top monkeys, the one and the two, always pick the banana pellets, whereas the submissive monkeys end up always self-medicating with cocaine. And this also happens, it's not just the individuals, because if the one and two go into a new group and end up as the three and four, they start to take the cocaine. And lo and behold, when they actually look at the brains of the monkeys afterward, the dopamine receptors in their brains have changed. They've had a physical and chemical structural change to their brain that has been brought about by the experience of, of wielding power. And one of the reasons I bring this up in the book is because If we accept that power changes your psychology and power changes your physical brain chemistry, we have to understand that if we're going to stop abuses of power. You know, I I think a lot of our analyses stop at the moralizing, and there's definitely a place for moralizing. There's a lot of people doing rotten things in power. But if you just stop at the moral condemnation and you don't go for the explanation and understanding, you're just going to keep doing the moral condemnation because we're not actually going to understand why this is happening and how we can actually stop it. And that's why you know, I, I try to take this more holistic approach of understanding what power is actually doing to people uh, as opposed to just saying, look at these awful, powerful people.
Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my job. That's the job of political journalists. That's that's our part of the thing. You have to stay off our field. Um, you mentioned those two police ads earlier, which I think is pretty good at explaining the kind of proposals which might help alleviate some of the issues that we see, namely by broadening the, the sort of talent pool that you take from and trying to get rid of more problematic individuals, but specifically look for people who might not normally be interested in power. Can you walk us through, because I have to say one of these police ads absolutely blew my mind, the American one. Can you talk us through the difference between these two ads and why they produce very different results? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm a product of the American Midwest. So I sort of understood the militaristic policing recruitment ads. I mean, you see these sometimes. But I went out looking for differences in international recruitment around policing, which is, you know, an area of power that's routinely abused. And so what I found the most extreme example of this is from a, a town called Doraville, Georgia, which is 10,000 people just outside of Atlanta. Um, it's, it's, you know, crime rate is about average. It's a small town. Mm-hmm. And they have this ad, they used to have this ad on their website for the police department that is the most absurd caricature you could imagine. You would think it was fake if you saw it uh, and, and you didn't understand the context of it. But it starts with the Punisher logo being flashed on screen, which is already a bad sign because this is a, a vigilante anti-hero <laughs> who like tortures criminals, right? Okay, so they start with the Punisher logo. Then they have this extreme death metal music with a song title I can't say in in, uh, polite company. And then it ends up with this tank, literal tank screaming into view with soldiers. They look like soldiers in camouflage, assault weapons and smoke grenades. Right. And then like the ad ends with the Punisher logo coming back into view as like the tank screams off after they've fired their guns and thrown the smoke grenade out the hatch of, of the tank. And it's like, if you want to apply to be a police officer in the Doraville Police Department, and you're just like a normal human being who wants to help the community, you're going to watch that and you're going to be like, okay, that's not what I thought this was going to be, right? If you're a militaristic person who wants to shoot people or abuse people or bully people with guns, I mean, sign me up, right? And so I went looking for people who had a different approach to this and had actually proactively sought to present policing differently. And New Zealand is is the sort of prime example I, I found where they spent a lot of money on a glitzy viral ad video campaign called Do You Care Enough to Be a Cop, right? It's as far away from the Punisher as you can imagine. <laughs> and you can Google this after after this talk. It's a great ad. It's re- They've got a series of them. But the, 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 the one that uh, I particularly picked up on, it's got like 2 million views on YouTube. I mean, New Zealand has 5 million people, right? So they've done something really well. And what they've done is they've presented policing as extremely demographically diverse, uh, extremely community oriented and fun. There's lots of funny little gags in the video. Ultimately, the police in the video are chasing this sort of unseen perpetrator. And at the end, it's a border collie who has stolen a woman's purse. And then it shows, you know, do do you care enough to be a cop after they sort of apprehend the perpetrator? I mean, you know, the difference between the border collie and like these unseen criminals that they're like firing guns at and shooting smoke grenades out of a tank at is a pretty different depiction of policing. And so the very simple but I think important observation that that I made in the book is this is something where if you present policing like an occupying army, you're going to get people who think they're soldiers going into these places. And indeed, on top of that, the U.S. actually deliberately recruits active duty veterans into the ranks of the police force, which probably makes sense for SWAT teams, but doesn't make sense for just the sort of community patrol officer to have a massive number of people whose 
most recent, you know, sort of deployment was like Fallujah in Iraq or, or, you know, somewhere in Afghanistan. And so in New Zealand, they got a much more diverse pool of applicants, which meant they could be pickier. And they got a demographically different pool of applicants, both in terms of personality and ethnicity and gender. And that improved relations between the police force and some of the uh, local, for example, indigenous communities of the Maori population, et cetera. And, and so, you know, the, the point that I make throughout the book that I found maddening when I was researching this is like, this isn't rocket science. Like, it's not like some quantum physicist came up in a lab with a way to make policing better. It's just, if you present policing as some group of people who care about other people, more caring people are going to apply for it. And yet, what do we do? We're on autopilot all the time. And we don't think about these things critically because a lot of the people who are designing the recruitment systems are themselves the product of getting into the system via the Doraville style recruitment ad. So they just recreate it and it just, you know, it's a self-perpetuating problem. Do you feel in general, I mean, you, you have a sort of list of really the last third of the book is, is a list of suggestions for improvement. Do you feel optimistic that we're likely to see any of them? What's your emotional instinct as to where we are in the direction of travel? Well, I'm, it's funny. I, I'm very optimistic about human nature, uh, despite, as I say, having interviewed some really awful people who've done atrocious things. Um, in the short term, I'm pretty pessimistic about the state of democracy and a lot of these aspects in, in our modern societies. I mean, I don't think that British political life and American political life and so on are, are, are traveling in the right direction. I'm really worried about some of these big picture trends. But what I am hopeful about is that by identifying some of the ways you can re-engineer systems of power to produce better results, that over the long run, we can get this right. I mean, you know, democracy is always a work in progress. And so these moments of sort of mass disillusionment or the breakdown of democracy can also be revitalization moments if they're harnessed properly. I mean, the other thing that I think I'm optimistic about, and I, this is like the, the dream email that I'm, you know, hoping will come out of this book is like, you know, a police officer who's a, a chief of police in like rural Louisiana writes to me and says, you know, I, I hadn't thought about it that way. We've changed our recruitment system because that's the sort of stuff where it builds on itself, right? You, you get these local interventions where you start to get better people into positions of power with small tweaks and ultimately those people become more powerful nationally, right? I mean, that's, that's the other thing that I think is so important here is that you have to think about the pipeline of power. I mean, the, the people who become the MPs and then the prime minister and so on, or the members of Congress and then the president, I mean, they have to get their start somewhere. So if you fix a lot of the local dynamics, it can make an impact on the national ones without the MPs basically voting for reforms that put themselves out of jobs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think there's some hope that this can happen. But uh, as I say, I mean, this is the way I reconcile a lot of my work is that I think the the, the state of democracy is in emergency mode. Uh, it's really, really bad in much of the world, but there are ways to fix this. And I'm hopeful that generationally speaking, uh, things will improve, but I, I'm not optimistic in the next two, three years. <clears throat> Hey, I'll take long-term optimism. I'll happily settle for that right now. Let's do some questions from the audience. And guys, there's still time to put it in the Q&A if you want. The first question is from James Beck. Um, says, first, the book is brilliant. Uh, we'll brush past that. What was the thinking behind not mentioning Trump once in the entire book? Uh, that's a great question. It, it, it's funny. People, a few people have asked me that. Um, it was deliberate. I deliberately decided the name Donald Trump does not go in this book. There's two reasons for it. Uh, one is more intellectually defensible. The other one's more personal. Um, the intellectual reason was because I think that at this moment, 
Um, Trump is absolutely central to thinking about abuses of power, but I don't want this book to be dated in five years. I hope he's gone by then. Uh, he may well be president again, but you know, my, my, my initial reaction in writing the book was I want somebody to pick this up in 2030 and think, okay, these are, these are some points that are relevant now because the questions that I'm grappling with are the questions. I mean, they're literally the questions that like Greeks and Romans grappled with. These are, these are not, uh, 2022 questions. So I didn't want to position the book as a 2022 book. Um, the other thing that I basically decided on this was I was so sick of thinking about Donald Trump. I've spent so many brain cells and so many years thinking about that person. <laughs> I was just like, okay, everybody who wants to Google my views on Donald Trump, I have written hundreds of thousands of words about him. <laughs> and it's time to do something different and stretch my intellectual wings a little bit. And, and, and uh, that's, that's, that was the, the rationale for the choice. I emotionally can profoundly understand that decision. It's a good question here from Zoom user. Um, there have been many leaders with significant power throughout history. We've seen more often the same characteristics, actions, and similar events in their longevity and power. So does power corrupt everyone equally or does it depend on the individual? This is a great question. So there's obviously a distribution here. I mean, there are some people who are going to be quite susceptible to they get their little taste of power and they all of a sudden become a tyrant. There's other people who would take quite a long time. And you see this, you know, this sort of effect of time is really important. Um, it's, it, I don't think it's like a switch. I don't think it's something where people sort of start, uh, you know, good and then they become powerful and the next day they're, they're, you know, they don't care about other people. I think time is a really, really important variable. But personality also is too. And the reason I don't answer this question as directly in the book is because obviously there's going to be a distribution. So what you do is you design a system with the worst in mind. You sort of think, what do we do for a system in which the most power hungry psychopath is trying to get into power? How do we block them from getting into power or deter them from seeking it in the first place, right? Then we think about how we design a system where we constrain that individual if they do wiggle their way into power, wiggle their way into power, is we sort of find, okay, let's try to find checks and balances that would stop them from inflicting harm on other people. Um, and, and, and then also, how can we get rid of them? How can we design a system that allows a safety valve to, to get rid of bad leaders? Now, I think one of the fascinating aspects that unfortunately we don't have good data on, and, and it's just a limitation that I wasn't able to answer, is, for example, are psychopaths the same in China and Malawi and the United States? We don't know. Almost all of the research on dark triad traits are from Western Europe and the United States. And so it's totally possible that some of these psychological studies are indeed parochial to Western uh, contexts. And, and that's one aspect that I think is really interesting for future research to imagine is does power corrupt equally across culture? I, I, we don't have a perfect answer for that. Um, and so that's part of the reason, honestly, why I, I didn't cover it is just because there's not, it would be supposition. It's not really, there's no hard data on it. Alexandra uh, Rossetti asks, my understanding of narcissistic personality is that they look more for acceptance and confirmation. Isn't this different than looking for power, especially when politicians have such a negative connotation? Yeah. So one of the interesting things, I talk about this study in the book that shows that narcissists make more money on average than non-narcissistic people. And it's partly because they're attuned to what other people think of them. They're hypersensitive with their egos. And that actually can be a really successful trait in moderation in the business world, for example, because if you care about people liking you and you're really, really sensitive to that, you might actually do things that make people like you more. So narcissism in modest 
amounts is not necessarily destructive. What is destructive is when narcissism is blended with psychopathy and Machiavellianism, which is this dark triad trait. And, and it's why, you know, again, it's difficult to sort of quantify. All these things are quantified, right? There are, there are scales and so on. And indeed, you know, I, I hesitate to mention this, but it was, it was one of the things that was a, a, a victim of the lockdown was my planned trip to get my brain scanned uh, by somebody who actually studies psychopaths. I was going to fly out and um, go through the MRI thing and see what it was like and see how mm -hmm. I did on these various scores. Um, you know, the plan was to go in like April of 2020. So obviously it didn't happen. But you know, you, you can quantify it, you can measure it, you can study it, et cetera. The question is, where does the tipping point happen between what is sort of a functional quirk of somebody who's going to be narcissistic but harmless compared to someone who is so narcissistic that when it comes to inflicting huge amounts of harm on other people versus modest praise for themselves, they pick the modest praise. And that's the, that's the aspect that we can't quantify because it will differ from person to person. Um, what we can say, I think, is that when they're dialed up to the extremes, those are the worst people to have in power. And unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of them. Now, I, my heart usually sinks when someone mentions electoral reform in the questions, because I hang out with a lot of liberals. And as soon as that subject comes up, it is going to take 20 minutes of detailed conversation about various models. But Robert Eastwood has asked, I think, probably the most interesting electoral reform question I've seen for a really long time. I'd like to hear Brian's view on how electoral reform might help us avoid the narcissists. And I think take for that also, you know, Machiavellians, et cetera. Is there evidence that PR does better in this respect than first past the post? This is a great question. So I don't know the answer to this because, and this is one of the maddening things I found out uh, in researching this book, is there's a lot of people who study these problems but when they're in different disciplines, they don't talk to each other. And this was something that was so wonderful about doing this research is, is speaking to neuroscientists and evolutionary biologists and psychologists um, about these questions and realizing that the sort of psychology literature on dark triad traits isn't married up with the uh, electoral reform literature. So we don't have a good answer to that. What I will say to answer the question, though, is this is where I come in with my proposal for what I call sortition for oversight, which is basically this idea that draws on uh, the ancient Greeks use of what's called the claritarian, where they sort of randomly assigned people to a citizen assembly um, using this device called the claritarian and have them make decisions. Now, I think in 2022, that model I don't find appealing because I do not believe that a randomly selected group of people would be better at doing things like nuclear test ban treaty negotiations, et cetera, stuff that's really, really complicated and requires some truly specialized knowledge. But, and this is a big but, I think that using, using that proposal of sortition, random selection for oversight would be a very good idea. So the way I see, I see this happening is you sort of set up a shadow parliament or a shadow house of representatives in the US or a shadow board in a company. You randomly select people from it, which eliminates this sort of power hungry self-selection and you give them the opportunity to make the same decisions. You give them the same evidence, the same access to experts, et cetera. So when parliament debates something, this group debates something. And you basically pay them as though it's jury duty. You give them a salary like they're being an MP for a year. And then what happens is it's totally non-binding, but it provides a really illuminating juxtaposition when a, when a power-hungry, election-driven narcissistic politician does something based on lobbying or they give a contract to their friend via WhatsApp or whatever it is compared to what the average randomly selected group of people would do. 
because it would provide a really nice way of questioning politicians and those in power and saying, you know, wait a minute, you gave out this contract to this person who has no qualifications whatsoever. The randomly assorted group of citizens didn't do that. They picked somebody with a track record in this field. Can you explain the difference? Right? It's, it's the sort of thing that can provide accountability without any actual real power. And, and that, to me, is one way to provide a check without actually replacing all the elected officials uh, via random selection. Uh, Valentina Petenko asks, uh, and incidentally, I'm sorry for anyone whose name I'm mispronouncing, which I think will be pretty much everybody's. Um, would you say that there's an element of resilience of character that is more present in control slash power hungry people than in those who fail or do not seek power, and that this makes them more effective in holding on to their positions? Yeah, this is a great question. So I don't think it's necessarily a, an aspect of character. It may be an aspect of resilience. But I, I think th there's a few ways to talk about this. One is that in order to get power, you have to have a pretty thick skin, uh, especially in the sort of the, the real awful places that are our modern political systems at the highest levels. So you do have to have a thick skin, and that does self-select out people who are more vulnerable to sort of bowing out uh, at, at the first line of criticism or the first sort of attack that they face, et cetera. But on top of that, I think, you know, one of the aspects that you, you, you want to understand with uh, these, these power seekers is that, you know, as they face this criticism, as they face these rejections, the, they sort of steal themselves, right? So it also has a negative aspect to it because you become more uncaring, more empath less empathetic and so on. I, you know, even on a small level, I'm sure Ian, I'm sure you've seen this in yourself, but both of us have uh, public profiles and so on. We have, you know, we're on Twitter and we get horrible abuse occasionally directed to us. The first time it happened, it was like really uncomfortable, right? Someone was like saying mean stuff. It was like, oh, this is mean. Now I like take screenshots because I think they're so funny. Uh, <laughs> and you just sort of, but you're like, maybe something's changed about me that I just like don't care. And maybe that's not good, right? So, you know, I think there is that. The, the, the other aspect that I think is worth thinking about is when we have campaigns, what are we actually rewarding? What we're actually rewarding is people who are good at deflecting when they are, caught doing something bad, right? If you're really bad at sort of lying when you're caught in a scandal, you're done in politics. That's it. So what you end up having is this sort of survivorship where the people who stick around are the people who are slippery, the people who are very good at not answering questions, the people who are very good at surviving scandals. They have long careers. And that's not what you want to self-select for if it comes to competence in, in governance. So, you know, I think we have to think carefully about that and how the number of scandals someone has been through is actually a very good proxy for not how good they are at, at being a politician, but potentially at how bad they are at leading with integrity. And that's why one of the arguments I suggest in the book, too, is we have to stop allowing the self-selection by waiting for people to just put themselves forward. You shouldn't just say, who wants to be prime minister? Because that inevitably is going to draw in people who are probably pretty abnormal, right? I mean, you have a certain level of hubris to think you should run a country of 65 million people or 330 million people in the US and instead recruit people who have track records of integrity, who have proven that they actually understand the burdens of responsibility and, and, and basically pass the test when they're given opportunities to do wrong. So, you know, that, that to me is something where we have to think about not just the resilience in terms of, you know, thick skin, but also are we just rewarding people who don't answer questions, for example? I mean, this, the Today program in the UK is like the classic thing where you just, you, you listen to those interviews with the, the minister who's trotted out in the firing line after some scandal. And you're like, they've been given a script 
And honestly, the, the ones that don't, they don't, the, the, the presenters don't draw blood with the politicians who are best at just being extremely annoyingly evasive, but they live to fight another day, whereas the ones who actually try to engage get destroyed. So we reward, we basically reward uh, non-answering slipperiness in, in our political leaders, unfortunately. It's a very pithy and uh, thoughtful question from Robert Sharp. The strongman aspect that Brian is talking about just now is fascinating. Is it the case that power also corrupts voters? Well, you know, there's, that's a great question. Um, so there's a few things that point to this. One is this idea that these templates in our brains can be activated more or less depending on the frame that politics has presented us uh, with. So for example, I don't think it's, it's a, a mistake or an accident that Trump's inaugural speech was the, known as the Amer American carnage speech and that he said, I alone can fix it. He was presenting a dystopian vision of a country that was falling apart which then is going to elevate the crisis mentality, which then elevates the sort of I alone can fix it candidate in, in the minds. And also, of course, he was running against Hillary Clinton, which in that sort of dynamic was particularly salient um, if you're talking about strongman leadership. Now, I also think one of the things we have to think about is how voters are making irrational calculations regularly. So early on in the book, I talk about this study that I, I had to read this twice and check the source and everything because it's just so unbelievable. It's in one of the top scientific journals. It was either nature or science. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I mean, extremely well-vetted research. And they showed children a series of images of potential leaders and said, who do you want to be in charge of your ship, right? And they'd got no other information other than the face, nothing else. And then they said, okay, what the children didn't know was that these pictures weren't random. One of them was the picture of the winner of a French election. And one of them was the picture of the runner up in the French election. And lo and behold, the overwhelming majority of children picked the winner with no other information other than face, right? Which encodes, of course, some things like gender bias, sexism, racism, et cetera, but also something about facial structure does seem to have a strong correlation with leadership selection. So one of the things that I've sort of come away from this research process thinking about is how rational am I being when I evaluate a political candidate or a prospective leader? You know, how many hidden biases are going on in my head that if somebody studied it, they might actually find something. And it provides us perhaps a corrective to think really carefully and systematically when we pick leaders and, and write down, you know, what are the traits we care about? We don't do this. We don't sort of say, what do we want in a leader? We just sort of say, here's choice A, here's choice B. I've picked my, either my political tribal camp, or they look like a nice person, depending on your level of political engagement and so on. And I think that aspect of recognizing and accepting cognitive biases in leadership selection for voters is really, really important for getting better choices in the future. And on those lines, uh, Marion Summerfield asks, in the world of social media, populist leaders raising their profile, um, often raise their profile via TV, for instance, Apprentice, have I got news for you? Can't think of which two leaders in particular you're thinking of there, Marion. Isn't this about including critical analysis as part of the education process? Is that interesting? That is there, do you think some kind of role for in the manner in which we educate children to get them to spot this kind of personality type, the, the, the suitability for a role, that sort of thing? Yeah, so I think there's a, a few things here. I think one is, um, you know, we do have to think more carefully about what traits, as I said before, we want in a leader. But I also think we need to vet leaders much more effectively. I mean, you know, Donald Trump had no qualifications for the presidency. He didn't know anything about how the government operated. 
And we handed over, you know, the nuclear codes and the entire U.S. government, which is the most important government in the world for shaping geopolitics, to somebody who didn't understand the basics of what, like, how NATO operated. Right? For four years, he kept on talking about how uh, certain countries. Uh, were defaulting on their payments to like the NATO bank, basically, as opposed to talking about the 2% threshold they were supposed to spend on defense. He just didn't understand that. And, you know, one of the things that I think about is uh, one of the, the odd things I do on the side is I, I'm, I'm, in, I'm currently in a training program to be a volunteer tour guide at a local area of historic interest. And it's a six month training program. And, you know, I have to take two tests. And then they'll hand over the, the tour guide opportunity to me, right? I mean, it's a very rigorous program. It's sort of funny. Um, but that's so much more training and oversight than like our prime minister or our presidents have. <laughs> and, you know, I, I also, I wish, I, I really genuinely wish that at some point when they go to leadership selection, whether it's a, the future general election in this country or, you know, a presidential primary in the U.S., all of the politicians make the rounds at the various news outlets, right? They go and they have their interview with various journalists or whatever for their features. This happens in the U.S. at least where they have you know, the New York Times interviews every Democratic candidate. What I would love for them to do next time is to secretly spring on them a pop quiz about, you know, what is the budget of the, you know, sort of how, how much money does Medicare spend each year in the U.S.? Or what is the budget of the NHS in the U.K.? And say, you're not obligated to take this, this, uh, this pop quiz, but you know, your opponents probably will. So we'll just have to print that you just declined to answer this. It would be so illuminating because I think the people who actually are students of government and actually think carefully about how to solve problems would have no problem with this. You know? And I also think it wouldn't be necessarily a bad idea to think about psychological profiling for the very top jobs. I mean, in some businesses, they start doing psychometric evaluations um, at the very top levels, at least to try to enhance leadership capabilities. I, I think it would be difficult to get people to do this, but it would be a very good thing for our countries if we could have some basic sort of assessments of like, how does this person seem to behave on psychopathic analysis tests, you know, this sort of thing. Um, so yeah, there's not going to be one solution to this, but I do think the vetting is so much more important than we're giving it credit for. And the idea that just sort of you're good at getting people to like you in an election is not necessarily the same as saying you're ready to run a country. Um, there's several questions on gender and gender disparities and corruption. Um, so I'm going to ask Hazel Earwakers uh, because it made me laugh the most. I haven't, uh, but uh, I want to know, is one of your solutions regarding corruption that we should only have women as the top leaders in society? <laughs> Okay, so I have a I have a section uh, in the book where I talk about the obvious disparities uh, based on on gender and racism and so on. And one of the things that is really important to point out, there's sort of two ideas that I, I hold simultaneously. One is that all of the research on gender and corruption shows that women are less prone to abuse than men. Um, but and this is the second idea. There's a problem with these, this research because it's probably comparing apples to oranges. And by that, I mean that because of the systems that involve sexism in modern society, if you take people who are at the similar management level in a company, for example, it's probably been harder for the woman to get there because of sexism than the man. So comparing what seems to be apples to apples might actually be apples to oranges. So that's one critique methodologically is that the, the comparison methodology might be problematic. 
the other critique that I think is important to say is that if you say women are systematically better at, than men at, at holding power, which the evidence does seem to suggest this is the case, then you might fall into the trap of what's called gender essentialism, where you say women are good at some things and bad at other things. So what I write about in the book is I say, look, all of the evidence suggests that women are less prone to becoming corrupt based on abuse of power than men. But I also think that there's a huge element of sexism in this. And I also think that there are some reasons to take some of these methodological critiques seriously. There is no evidence to suggest women are worse. <laughs> I've, I've not seen any studies that show that they're more prone to corruption. Women are more prone to corruption upon uh, becoming powerful than men. So take it as you will, the evidence. What is obvious is that we, we would be much better served as societies if you had much greater equality between uh, women and men in positions of power. And one of the most depressing, depressing studies I saw in the book um, asked people if they could name a male tech leader or a female tech leader. And, you know, it was like everybody could name a male tech leader and they could rattle off like five or six of them by name. 8% of people said that, yes, I can name a female tech leader. So the follow-up question for those people was, okay, name one. The two most common answers were Siri and Alexa which tells you, I think, a lot about the state, the dystopian state of inequality in positions of power, particularly in fields that tend to be more male dominated. And even in the United States, I mean, no female president, about 24, 22%, depending on the year of Congress is female. I mean, it's, it's disastrous. And so there's no debate about the idea that we should have much more women in power. Obviously, this would be hugely beneficial to society. The question is whether it's an essentialist characteristic or not. And I sort of avoid that question uh, specifically because I don't think we have perfect analysis and also because I think gender essentialism can be used for poor ends, which is to say, say that women are certainly bad at some things. And that I think is quite unfair and uh, it leads us to a position in society we don't want to be. Penultimate question here. Greg Alexander asks, um, are there any effective, and I love this question, are there any effective and subtle ways to handle people abusing power in daily life? The office manager, for example. <laughs> I wish I had like the perfect antidote. This is like the passive aggressive, you know, response or something <laughs> like that. Um, I, I, I can't say that I have a perfect solution for you. Um, a lot of my discussions are more about systems to try to avoid these people being there in the first place and getting them out of there. Um, in your sort of daily interactions, one of the things I will say that does come from the book is this idea of psychological distance if you are facing someone who's abusive towards you or is treating you badly. Um, Psychological distance is this idea that basically the more abstract you seem to someone, the easier it is to abuse them. Um, and therefore, when you think about immigrants in the abstract, voters have one view, whereas if you pick a specific immigrant that somebody knows in their daily life, they might have a different view. And some of that is, you know, some someone saying, oh, well, they're not, they're not like the others, right, which is quite a rationalization. But some of it is this concept of psychological distance, which is the idea that this person is actually a complex individual. And therefore, I can't just write them off the way I would an entire group. So what I would point to is, you know, the sort of killing them with kindness idea of knocking them down by saying, you know, getting to know them a bit better, making sure that they understand you 
uh, as an individual could help. Now, <laughs> there are certainly plenty of people for whom this is absolutely pointless because they might be on the psychopath scale or they might just be an awful human being. Um, but that is one possible solution. Uh, there's a lot in the book that does talk about how these people end up in power um, and a lot in how we can remove them from power or get better systems. I don't know if I have the sort of day-to-day advice on whether to sort of, you know, passively, aggressively, uh, slowly of the air out of the tire of their cars or something like that. I wouldn't recommend that necessarily. <laughs> there are at least, I mean, there are so many examples of truly horrific, tyrannical middle manager types in your book that at least reading it might make you feel slightly better if you're currently facing a version of that, because they almost certainly won't be as bad as some of the examples in there. Well, yeah, I have, the, I have the psychopathic janitor and the uh, the homeowners association tyrant who I'm sure you'll recognize uh, if you're dealing with someone like this in your own life. Final <laughs> um, question is, uh, what should an advert look like for prospective candidates to replace our current prime minister? I really like that question. That's a really thoughtful and nice question. You know, I think I think the idea is centering this concept of public service and integrity at a moment in which the the faith of the country in those tenants has been really shaken over the last several years. And when you have uh, coming out of the pandemic and we're, it's a really serious time um, for, for the country to rebound. I think what you want to present is the person who cares about other people. Um, we don't often think about this with power, right? We don't, we, we don't think how many people has this person actually helped? How, what do they do in their free time to show that they actually care about other people? Um, you know, how do we know that this person is actually in it for other people rather than for themselves? And I think that's the kind of thing where, you know, I think about this a lot, and I know I'm drifting into the U.S. a bit for this question, but there was a, there's a recent proposal that's now working its way through Congress um, to ban stock trading, individual stock trading for members of Congress, because there were some members of Congress who basically used private briefings about the pandemic to sell off their stock portfolios before the markets crashed, which wasn't actually illegal. So there's a, a, an idea to ban trading for members of Congress. Now, one of the main Republican objections to this was they said, this will attract fewer people to the halls of Congress. It will make being a member of Congress less attractive. And to which I say, good. If you don't want to run for office because you're going to worry about your stock portfolio, that's a very good way of sorting out the people who are in it for themselves from the people who want to serve society. So I think, you know, A, you sort of think about these concepts in terms of traits and B, you start to make uh, the system actually undesirable for people who just want to get rich and become powerful and enjoy the prestige. And the more that you engineer those systems to be catering to those who care about the service as the end, the more you're going to get better people in power. You can't do that for the next election, probably. But I do think that idea of sort of uh, public servant is, is a really good way of presenting what the prime minister is supposed to be. Fantastic. Brian, thank you for taking the time. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming to join us. I think you'd agree that was really interesting. I would highly recommend the book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. I'm going to pick it up right now. And it is also behind Brian on the mantelpiece. It's been there. It will be there. That's just how he decorates his mantelpiece. That's just how he rolls. Um, thank you very much. I will remind you again that UCL Center for US Studies has another event, uh, I think, next month on US election integrity. I would uh, recommend that you sign up. Thank you very much for joining us. Have a good evening. Cheerio.